You're listening to the Dreamer's Den podcast. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I'm here along with guest dream workers, authors, and teachers to talk about diving deep into your dreams. We're skipping the small talk and going for conversations about what matters most to us, what's touching us so deeply that it shows up in our dreams, in one form or another. We talk about engaging with dreams to experience insight, inspiration, healing, and meaningful connection with one another. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can catch all these conversations. Visit thedreamersden.org open for a free video and mini book to help you learn more about opening up or deepening your own relationship with your dreams. You're about to hear a conversation I had with Will Sharon a dream worker and life coach, and I think you're going to love it. He has this combination of groundedness, education, experience, and care for people that I really appreciate. We talk about nightmares, why we don't really want to fracture our experience into conscious versus unconscious or waking versus dreaming, how to use active imagination to help a dream live in us and inform us over time, And the example he uses is a character who was frightening in the dream. And several other intriguing corners of thought and imagination that these subjects took us into. Enjoy. My guest today is Will Sharon. Will is a life coach and a dream worker. He's been working with dreams since he was a young therapist at the Veterans Administration in Manhattan. And since then, he's worked in clinical practice, acted and worked on New York City soap operas, and spent 25 years in a corporate career. Now, as a coach, Will works with dreams. He likes to help his clients animate and add dimension to the dream, working to keep it alive for them so it can inform them over time. And Will likes to say, by seeing the experience of dreaming as an ordinary experience, we can better appreciate the extraordinary experience of being human. So welcome, Will. Thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's dive in. I'd love to ask first how and when you first realized that dreams were really important to you. Well, I think it was probably when I was about four. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Yeah. There was a, uh, Walt Disney had this, a uh, movie called Fantasia. Uh-huh. And I think I saw it on television. And there's a there's a part in Fantasia where Mickey Mouse is the sorcerer's apprentice and learns, you know, sort of a half-baked version of what the sorcerer was doing and got these brooms to carry all these buckets of water and got out of control and it was a big flood. And and uh then the sorcerer came in very angrily and restored everything. Anyway, that that part of that movie was the subject of nightmares uh, for uh, quite a while. Uh-huh. And what I, and my parents, you know, were not very sophisticated in terms of uh, certainly the dream world or any kind of emotional awareness. And they kept telling me, don't pay attention to it, it's just a dream. Well, it's a little difficult when you're four years old and you have a nightmare <laughs> not to pay attention to it. Yeah. But one of the things I noticed, I guess, probably when I got a little older, was that the emotional range in dreams was not matched by my experience when I was awake. Uh So there was something going on that became more attractive as I got older. And, you know, the nightmares turned into sort of adventure kind of dreams that was very interesting. I didn't understand it. And there was nobody to talk to about it because nobody was particularly interested. But... I sort of carried it with me, this this experience of dreaming and just kind of re-experiencing the dreams at various points in my day. So it, it really started then. Um, it went away, you know, when I hit adolescence and I discovered other sorts of fantasies to think about other than my dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then came back when I I, uh, as a young man, started working in psychiatric facilities and then became a, got a, a clinical social work degree and started working with dreams at the Veterans Administration. Uh-huh. So that's, that's really when I started using it professionally. And when you started diving in professionally 
it sounds like, you know, you were at the VA and was this a new thing for your clients or did people come in wanting to talk about their dreams? Um, well, this will date me a bit, but this was prior to PTSD, right? We didn't have okay. that diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. So some of the clients were coming in with dreams because they were terrifying. Yeah. Um, and you know, so, so the, the, the therapeutic container for dreams and look, I was a therapist. I've been in therapy. It's I'm, I'm not knocking therapy as a huge gigantic problem, but one of the things that it does is it starts with the problem, right? It starts with pathology. The question is, why are you here? We used to actually call it the presenting problem. Yeah. And when you start with a problem, that's the container that you work with dreams in. You're trying to resolve the problem. It takes a very long time. Um, so coaching is a different dynamic. Coaching says you're naturally whole, creative, and resourceful. So when you bring a dream, it is, even though it, it's, it may be a troubling dream, it is about your agenda. It's about what do you want, uh -huh. not what your problem is. And I think, you know, I just finished writing a book and one of the seminal experiences I had at the VA was a young guy came in, he had, he had gotten into the military as a teenager, I think he was 17. And he had literally been traumatized beyond belief. Mm. And he would come in, sometimes he wouldn't even talk, he would just sit. Uh, and most of the time I didn't think he was going to come back. But one day he came in with a dream. And the dream was basically that he had come to my office in the dream and opened his wallet and had taken out these pictures of himself and his family and his experiences, but they were all torn into bits. And initially in the dream, he wanted to give them to me to put together. And then he realized he needed to put them together himself. Wow. And so in this work, <laughs> more often than not, more often than most of us, I think, want to admit, we are taught by the people we're trying to help. Yeah. And what he was teaching me was, actually, I don't want you to do this. I want you to help me do this. And that really began to change how I understood dreams, that they are really an internal conversation. And what a therapist does or what a coach does or however you label yourself, the best we can do is ask a bunch of questions to try and help somebody understand their own conversation. Uh-huh. And that's really how I see dreams in the work I do today, which is that dreams are really, most of the dreams we have are trying to show us about a way, a belief system, a way that we have organized our experience. And they show us that in sort of painful, uncomfortable ways. But the question is, is this what you really want? Is this uh -huh. really how you want to organize your experience? Um, and the answer is usually no. <laughs> I, I, this is not fun. I don't like this. Yeah. Uh, and that's a starting place, right? We, we begin to understand that we have outgrown a way of organizing our experience. And we're about to step into something new. What I, what I always say to people is your, your dreams are helping you step into the next larger version of who you are. Uh-huh. So I wonder if you have, I, I would love to hear a story, an example of this, where a dream shows you maybe, or someone you've worked with, if you can share it anonymously, a way that life is organized that is actually not working that well or not that appealing and kind of how that insight might've helped something shift. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so this is a dream um, that I use often. And, and obviously I always ask permission if I can use it. So this is a dream of a woman who had been a lawyer, had trained as a coach, uh, really didn't have much of a practice. So here's her dream. I'm driving on a country road in a van with my two sons in the back. One is 16, the other 14. Suddenly we hit a traffic jam. Nothing's moving. This goes on for some time. And I asked my older son to get out of the car and walk up and see what's going on. He gets out of the van and walks up out of sight. I wait, but he doesn't come back. Some time passes and I get concerned. I get out of the van and walk around the back. There's a, there's a body in the road. At first, I think it's my son, but when I look closer, I see it isn't. But then I see there are other bodies underneath the first body and I think one of those might be my son. And I'm so frightened I wake up. 
Okay, so this dream is obviously a nightmare. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the things that we can do is we can look at sort of the beginning, middle, and end of a dream and try and embody what the feeling is in one word. So here are the words that she came up with. Frustration, okay, she's on a country road, there shouldn't be traffic jams on a country road, but there is, right? So uh-huh. frustrated. Then she takes action. She asks her son to get out and go up and look. She gets out, right? So there's frustration, then there's action. What's the result? Catastrophe, right? Uh-huh. People die. Okay. So when we looked at those three words, frustration, action, catastrophe, I said, well, does that resonate anywhere in your life? And she said, well, that is my life. Mm. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that she feels like if she really steps into the work she wants to do, her family will fall apart. Everybody will be angry at her. You know, she won't be able to take care of everybody the way she does now and so forth, right? So, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm not a, one of the things in coaching is this idea that, well, you know, you always encourage the client to take action, which I think is useful. But this felt to me is just like, you know what, just sit in this, just go back in this dream, understand these feelings. And what it prompted her to do was sit down with her husband and have a kind of a come, come to Jesus conversation, as we say. Uh-huh. And what she discovered was that not only her husband, but her sons were more than happy and very excited to change the organization of the family so that she could have a career. Mm-hmm. So she had a view of what was going to happen. And, and we have, you know, this is obviously a nightmare, right? And it's, it's the worst nightmare a parent could have, you know, which is one of your kids dies. Yeah. He has died, right? So it's a very powerful, and, and that's what nightmare is about. They're getting your attention about something that is really critical for you to look at. Obviously, her expectations didn't match the response she got. And what she discovered is, in a way, she was denying her family the opportunity to support her, you know, because of this conviction that she had that they wouldn't. So the dream in and of itself is, is also a good example of what a nightmare is about, right? People don't like nightmares. Um, you know, we're, we're happy to pay to be scared out of our wits, right? Uh-huh. Because because we know it's coming. We'll jump off a bridge on a bungee cord, right? This is nuts, but we know that's what's going to happen. Nightmares happen to us. You know, we don't ask for them. And that's one of the reasons they're so frightening, because they're sort of grabbing us by the neck and shaking us and saying, pay attention to this. And so I always say to people when they come in with a nightmare, this is your lucky day, you know, <laughs> whatever uh-huh. this is, this is kind of critical stuff. Yeah. And has that, um, I, I share that attitude with nightmares too, that it's, it's almost exciting to know that there's something so important that we have something so important to say to ourselves that we're making such a noise about it, you know, something so attention grabbing, Absolutely. but you, you were talking about, you know, when you were a child and you had these nightmares that were terrifying you, um, mm. has that, I, this is a little bit of a, a detour, but I'm curious because I know you've talked about kids and nightmares. Do you feel like this applies to what you were going through at age four? And do you ever have the chance to support children working through nightmares in this way? Um, it's more working with parents. Um, uh-huh. Nightmares and kids are are interesting from the standpoint that, I mean, let's let's take an example. So you and I have probably seen hundreds, if not thousands of folding chairs in our lives, right? We Uh look at a folding chair, we know what that is. We don't even give it a nanosecond of thought. You take a two-year-old who has never seen a folding chair and they will become fascinated. You know, they'll crawl under it, they'll try and get on top of it, they'll stick their fingers in places where they could get pinched, all kinds of right? So what they're doing is they're developing a catalog or a repertoire. They're, they're understanding what this thing is, right? So as kids, 
and there's no escaping this. I, I know there are some parents that get oh concerned we shouldn't fight in front of the kids and all. And and yeah, you shouldn't have knockdowns, screaming fights. But on the other hand, disagreements are in a way useful for kids to see because they give them an understanding that there's a range of emotion in a in a relationship. However, if mom and dad are arguing about something and a kid has no experience or very limited experience with arguments, that's probably something that's gonna show up in their dream world because they have taken this experience and they're trying to understand what the heck it is, you know? And the dreamer will say, okay, here it is in Technicolor, you know? Uh-huh. The problem parents have, I think, in talking to kids about their dreams is that they, they kind of need to own up to the idea that nightmares are the, the beginning of the development of an emotional range that are based on the parent's behavior. It's not a bad thing. It's just something you have to recognize. So, for example, in talking to a kid about a nightmare, you know, they get up in the middle of the night, they're scared, they come into your bed, whatever it is. The next morning you can ask, do you want to tell me what your dream was about? And they can say no. And that's okay. Yeah. But they they need to begin to understand there's an audience for this experience, that it's not something that nobody wants to talk about. And eventually, as they begin to talk about it and they begin to say what they were so frightened about, and you can say, well, is there anything, you know, in your waking life that this reminds you of? It's the same dynamic that we use when we work with adults. And the, I think the, it's a huge gift to a child to understand that there is number one, this audience, and number two, they have the ability to say, to understand maybe at some point, maybe not, but at some point to say, well, yeah, I get scared when you and dad fight. Uh-huh. And the conversation had to be had there, you know, about the range of emotion in a relationship. So it's not only validating the experience of the kid, but it's also beginning to give license to this aspect of their imagination to say this is not something to be afraid of this is something in you that has frankly more power than what you think mm-hmm. you know yeah something something not to be afraid of and not to be dismissed as unreal like you were saying yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's very real yeah i mean that's what i was told is they're not real mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah they seem pretty real yeah <laughs> you know? yeah uh, it's not something you want to tell a kid. Right. Oh, and it's it's very um uh disorienting and confusing, right? Yeah. To come to come to the person you trust and be told, no, what you're going through is is nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um okay, well thank you for that. And then um but back to this this nightmare for the woman who then went and spoke with her family. Mm-hmm. So like you said, with coaching, you know, you're often inviting an action and she she took action in having this conversation so Mm -hmm. it you know it sounds like it was right on it was right what she needed right what she needed to be addressing so is this an example of what you're talking about with you know letting a dream live as opposed to just discussing it for interpretation one-on-one yeah i think i mean this is an idea that comes from james hillman actually you know and jung was really the the person who who put interpretation into our lexicon right the problem I have with interpretation is that basically you're extracting from the dream a cognitive meaning, okay? And that's the knock on Jung. And there, there, are, there are very few knocks on The guy was a genius. He was probably more of a, an alchemist than he was a therapist, but phenomenal human being. However, he was stuck in this idea of meaning. Well, what is meaning? Meaning is we take an experience that is for the most part, emotional, and we jam it into a cognitive understanding. Oh, okay, the bear was my father, and that's why I was so scared, and I should work on not being scared of my father. Okay, well, you know what? That's an endless cycle, because actually the bear is not your father. The bear is a bear, and the bear (laughs) you, and the bear would like to be known by you, not be told there's something else. That's my view, And, and increasingly, I think it's a, it's a it's a useful one in the sense that we can understand not understand that we can experience our dream world 
Because what is it really? We're having this conversation between two parts of ourselves that speak a different language. And one of the things that people have said over time, and I'm probably going to wander around here a little bit, so pull me back in if I'm not answering you. Okay, okay. But, you know, we had dreams before we had myths. We had dreams certainly before we had literature. But if we look at dreams, dreams are really the construct, right? They've got a story, they've got characters, they've got an emotional range. They were really the beginning of stories. So what we want to do when we wake up from a dream is we want to capture the story. And there are sometimes I work with clients who want to just take notes, you know, and I say, no, no, no. You want to sit down and you want to write the story. Why? Because as you write the story, you'll experience it again. And yes, you'll be able to understand it in your cognitive mind. You'll be able to say, oh, okay, like the, the dream I read, this has a beginning, middle, and an end. You know, it has a scene. Okay, so now we have that structure, the story. Then we go back and we hang the emotional arc on that story. And a lot of times we find in dreams that the emotion we feel doesn't match up with the story. Like you can be standing on a hundred story building with your toes over the edge and you're not scared in the dream, right? We put you there when you're awake, you're, you're freaking out, right? Yeah, right. So now we need to see, okay, well, how does the emotional arc match the dream? And then when we tell it, and the telling of the dream is important because in the telling, it now comes out of us and we get a response to it, right? And who you tell the dream to is important, that they don't have an agenda for you and think they know what you don't know and all that stuff. Uh -huh. You need someone who does not have an agenda, who literally wants to hear what your soul is saying to you. When you do that, it takes on a, another dimension in the sense that now it's an experience. It's not just a story, it's not just a series of emotions. Now it's an experience. You had the experience of saying the dream out loud. And that experience, it's sort of like, you know, you and I are gonna have this conversation. And let's say, let's hope, that it's a really good conversation for the both of us, right? Uh -huh. So two days from now, we might think about, oh, you know, that was really interesting that question she asked, or that was really interesting, that answer he gave or whatever, because the, the, the experience is living in us, right? Yeah. And we're revisiting it to discover more. So that's what I always say about, you know, we don't want to interpret the dream. We want to let it live in us and inform us over time. And when we do that, our dreamer goes, okay, now there's an audience here. Now I can build on this. And now I can begin this conversation because our cognition needs a context. You know, the fact that we can think is a huge and remarkable and amazing gift. Uh -huh. But thinking without context, we can look around in the world and see what that means. You know, mm -hmm. we can think about how a company can make a profit without caring about what it does to the environment or the people who work there or anything, because all we need to think about is profit. But if we have the container of our soul, we understand that that is but one metric of a whole raft of metrics that are extraordinarily important in terms of being human beings. So cognition's great, but in a way it is the gardening tool of the soul. It's, it, it shouldn't be the driver, right? Yeah. It should be the executor, the manifester of who we are as human beings. And can I talk a little bit about subconscious and unconscious for a minute? Is that Absolutely. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Please. So I started teaching coaches and by the way, in the coaching world, it's amazing to me. People don't work with dreams. It's like we see everybody naturally all creative and resourceful, but not when they're asleep apparently. <laughs> so I started teaching this course and I found myself and other people using these words, subconscious and unconscious. And I realized one day, you know, I was a therapist. I should know what the hell the difference is. And I don't. Um, so I went back and, and I found out. And I was shocked. So this word subconscious came into the lexicon through a guy named Pierre Genet, who I'd also never heard of. One uh -huh. of the three founders, apparently, of modern psychology. 
So what's his definition of subconscious? He says, underneath the critical thought functions of the conscious minds lies a powerful awareness that he called the subconscious. And I looked at that sentence and I said, okay, wait a minute here. He's saying underneath the critical thought functions of the conscious mind, that seems like he's conflating thinking with consciousness. Yeah. So think about it, it's conscious. Well, no, it isn't. That's not consciousness. Our consciousness is a whole range of experience. Our consciousness is our intuition. Our consciousness is our emotions that we don't think about, but that make us up and make us conscious. Uh huh. So I think this was the beginning of this conflation of cognition and consciousness, which I think has gotten us in a bit of trouble. Anyway, he's you know, apparently was well-known in the United States and Europe, and he's talking about this, and a contemporary of his is Sigmund Freud, who hears about this and says, oh, okay, that sounds like an interesting thing. And he talks about it and writes about it until 1913, when Genet got up at a conference and he said, you know, this guy Freud, he keeps taking my ideas and renaming them and calling them his own. <laughs> well, that didn't go down so well, right? So shortly thereafter, Freud says, well, actually, it's not subconscious, it's unconscious. And his definition of unconscious is all these feelings and emotions and stuff that we don't want to in our awareness, so we suppress them. Uh -huh. So we have these two words basically because of an argument between two Western European white heterosexual guys. And I think they may have outlived their usefulness because what we do with those words is we fracture our sense of consciousness and we tell ourselves that there are aspects of who we are that are less accessible than other aspects of who we are. Mm. I don't think that's true. I think that, you know, we become, consciousness is not about who's more or less conscious. We're all conscious. Awareness is what differentiates us. Interest in knowing our experience is what differentiates us. And so the more barriers we put by saying something is, less conscious or actually unconscious means not conscious i don't know how you have something that's not conscious yeah um, so when i you know as i became as i got that understanding in terms of what i was teaching um what i really tried to do is simplify this whole experience from the standpoint of trying to eliminate as much jargon as possible and to make it accessible for us and to say to ourselves, you know what, my dreams are just a part of my experience. I mean, they're phenomenal in the way that they're trying to inform me, but being human is phenomenal, not dreaming. And I think we've gotten ourselves, driven ourselves a little crazy, you know, um, to say that, you know, dreaming is somehow this weird experience that, only some people pay attention to and it's not helpful you know yeah that that is so um well that is helpful what you're saying right now i mean i'm noticing even the ways that i hold this kind of belief and you're challenging it that that when we dream we're somehow um in a different type of experience i mean of course it is a different variety of experience but uh that you're talking about you know not fracturing this waking awareness um, from the dreaming experience, which also contains clearly some awareness because yeah. we wake up and tell the story. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so did you want to say anything else about um, helping the dream live? Kind of, I think you, you talked about um, amplifying it or adding dimension to it so that we can carry it with us. Were you going to say something else about that? Yeah. Um, it might be useful for me to use another dream, but uh, let me preface sure. this by, yeah. by talking about something called active imagination, which in the West is credited to Jung, and, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that he didn't come upon it himself, but we can also go back into 10th century Islam, mm. um, where there was actually a psychology and also active imagination there as well. I'll there are a lot of different ways there are a lot of different ways you can use active imagination. So let me, let me read this dream and then I'll give you an example. Okay, great. So this is a dream uh, by that a woman had. Um, 
and it was it was repetitive in the sense that she every six weeks to three months would have a dream about a huge snake. So here's the dream. I'm driving in my car to a meeting with some people in a castle. The people seem like they are my parents and in-laws, but they're not exactly the same. There's some urgency because I'm on the verge of being late. Then I'm in a park walking along a path, and since I'm walking, I'm almost certain that I will be late. I have the thought that I might see a snake, and then I see as I round the corner that there's a big black snake coiled around the path. It lifts its head up and puts it directly in front of mine. I'm so frightened that I wake up. Okay. Now we could go into this dream in terms of understanding the circumstances in her life, which was that she took care of everybody and her parents and in-laws lived two blocks from her. All that kind of stuff was true. But <clears throat> what we did was we said, well, the snake keeps showing up. So let's have a conversation with the snake. Let's find out who, who the snake is, right? Now, again, we don't want to know why the snake is in your dream and what message he has to say to you. We want to get to know him. So the active imagination that we did was in the session, right? So I would ask the question and she would ask the snake and she would tell me what the snake said. And as we went through this, the first thing usually that I will do, well, let me interject this because it's important. When you start an active imagination session, the first thing you wanna do is say, well, okay, how do I feel towards this snake? Now, if you're still frightened of it, if you're not curious, then there's a part in you that is trying to protect you that you need to ask to step aside. Mm. I understand the snake is scary in my dream, but I'm awake now and I'll be okay. And it's only gonna be 10 minutes, right? Because you wanna be in a state of curiosity. Okay. So yeah. as we started this session, we discovered the snake's a male. And then we discovered that the snake's name was Cole. All right. So you got Cole the black snake. Well, mm -hmm. that's always an indication you're on the right path because your soul has a sense of humor and your soul loves a pun. Yeah. Right? Yes. So as we got to know this snake, this snake said, look, my job is to stop you from running around like a lunatic. My job is to stop you from running from one in-law to the next, to your parents and back and taking care of your husband. My, my job is to stand in your way until you recognize me because I'm you. I am this power in you. Well, initially she didn't like that so much, right? Because she didn't like the idea that there was this snake power in her. But as we talked about it more and talked to the snake more, she began to say, oh, wait a minute. This is power. You know, this is, and you know, you can look at a snake in mythology and get 12 different interpretations. Mm -hmm. But for her, the snake was force and the snake was power. Now, that's a guided active imagination session. So if your listeners had a dream that they had and there was a character or an animal or even an object in the dream that they wanted to know more about, there's a way to do this on your own. And, and the, the, there's a method to the madness here that's important. Okay. So what you want to do is go back into the dream, just the way we did, you know, I did with this woman. But you want to sit down at your computer and you want to type a script. So you use, you know, your first initial colon, you know, would you talk to me? And you always ask, would you talk to me? And then whatever it is, you make up an initial colon and what their response is, and you type it. Why do you do this? Well, there's two reasons. One is, of course, it's nice to know what the conversation was. But the other one is you want to be busy enough to keep your ego out of the way. Mm. Because your ego wants this to turn out the way they want it to turn out, right? which is then is an act of imagination. It's a fantasy. That's where your ego basically is driving your imagination. Okay. Right? So we don't want the ego involved. So that's what the typing is about. And, and you want to keep stuff going on so your ego can't get in the way. And a lot of people say to me, and I, you know, I did a video on this. It's, it's on my YouTube channel. It's like, this feels like I'm just making this up. Yeah, you're making this up. That's what it is. It's uh -huh. <laughs> you are making it up. And that's a, such a 
derogatory statement in our culture. You know, well, you're just making it up, meaning you're lying. Or if it's a little kid, it's even worse to say to a little kid, you're just making it up because you're interfering with their imaginative life. Yeah. Yeah, they're making it up. So you can do this. You can have these conversations. And again, it's really important to not try and extract meaning, not ask the question, why are you in my dream? They're in your dream because they're part of you. You want to get to know that part of you. So that's why you type it out. And, you know, my recommendation is these, these sessions, and you'll know, you'll know when the sort of the questioning has run its course. And you always, you know, you always want to honor this part of you that stepped forward. So you always express gratitude at the end. And you always ask, can you come back? Now, you may go into active imagination and you may ask for a conversation. And the answer is no. Mm. Okay. Uh, that's the end of that session. Okay. You can come back, you know, and you can ask again. Um, and it's an indication to you that, oh, okay, there's something here that that is difficult. There's something here that, you know, I can't force this, but I can keep showing up because I need to understand this. Yeah. I need, to, I need you know, yeah. So, so those are ways that, you know, we can work on our own with dreams. But as, as I was saying before, I think, you know, the telling of the dream is really, it's a critical component. Um, because many times, and I've had this experience myself, but, you know, a client will tell me a dream and in the middle of it, they're burst into tears. And it's like, wow, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't expect that at all. I, you know, thought I understood what this dream was. Yeah. You know? Yes, I, I do. When you're in the sharing of the dream and the having it witnessed, sometimes the experience is completely different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that's important. I mean, if you, if you don't have anybody to tell it to, you can, you can work with it, you know, on your own. And I think it's also useful to maybe talk a little bit about who do you tell your dreams to? Um, yeah. 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 Go ahead. No, I, you mentioned that earlier and I was curious what you would say about, you know, how do you know if someone's a good person to tell your dreams to, if you don't already have friends and family who love dreams or a dream group? It's going to be somebody that you know, probably, unless you're working with someone. Um, and basically what you need to say is, look, I have dreams that I would like to tell you. I'd like to listen to your dreams as well, but we need to have an agreement. And the agreement is that we will enter into this with the idea that neither one of us knows what this dream is about. And that you can share your intuitions with me as intuitions. So there's this famous line that has been claimed by a whole bunch of people, but as far as I know, uh, it was a guy named Monty Ullman, who was a psychiatrist who came up with it. If you preface an intuition with the phrase, if this were my dream, this is what I'd be curious about, and this is what it feels like to me, or whatever. Because then the other person can say, well, okay, A, it's not your dream, which is not a prohibition, but I'm hearing this as though it's something that's coming up in you. I have to, I have to see if it resonates with me. And if it does, cool, because now we can walk down this path together. If it doesn't, no harm, no foul. You know? Yeah, yeah. Because by, by knowing what it, what it isn't, it'll help us understand what it is. And it's, it's funny. I mean, the business I'm in, I'm wrong at least a third of the time. Uh-huh. At least, you know? And I expect that. Um, because my job really is to help somebody else understand it, not to be right, you know? If you're in it to be right, you're dead. <laughs> if you, if you're, and I always think when somebody tells me a dream, if I have, a, if I have this thought, oh, I know what this is, I'm, I'm not ready to work because I don't know what it is, right? Yeah. So you have to have the agreement with the other person that you're going to enter into this experience not knowing. And we don't like that. You know, none of us, you know, I mean, I do because I do it all day long, but out in the world, most people don't like not knowing what's going on. We want to make sense. Yep. And so it's a commitment, you know, and it's, it's, it's a commitment that you, 
revisit with somebody if you're going to tell them your dreams over time. And, and I think also, you know, unless you're working with, you know, someone that you have retained to help you, there's got to be reciprocity. It can't be just they're listening to your dreams. You want to listen to their dreams. Yes. Uh-huh. Then that aspect of you, that imaginative aspect in both of you is connecting. Right. Can't be, you know, it can't be a one-way street. So, uh, and and then there, there are some hard choices to make. You may have a partner who you love dearly, but they're not the right person. You know, they might be, but they might not be. Uh, and, and the other thing I would say, and in this day of, you know, the internet and the ability to post whatever you think in the moment online at any time, it is useful to allow yourself the time to allow the experience to inform you before you talk to other people about it. Right. So you may work with somebody on a dream. You'll, you'll come away from it with some understanding, but you gotta let that sit because as soon as you publicize it, you lose it, you're giving it up, you know? There are boundaries that we have, you know, people talk about boundaries like you don't want people intruding into your life, et cetera. The more important boundary in my mind is what you keep in, what you can't give away, what you should not give away because it's the essence of who you are. And when you give it away, you don't allow that essence to grow because it's not there anymore. You made it public. It's out there. You, mm. you lost it. Uh, and it is a sort of, it's an occupational hazard of people who, you know, work in this kind of business. Because what are we doing? We're constantly sharing our intuitions. We're constantly going into the unknown with somebody. Yeah. But there has to be a part of you that you retain, not because out of fear or paranoia or, or stinginess. It's just, it's not something you can give away. And if you do, <laughs> you lose yourself. So that's what I always say to people is, you know what, just sit with this, you know, yeah. don't feel compelled to talk about it. Allow it to live in you. you know? mm-hmm. This is part of who you are. I'm hearing a lot of guidance from you about what to say aloud or write down or not. And it's, um, it's really catching my attention because I, it's not something I've paid a lot of attention to in this way that you know, you said it's important to write down the story, the whole story, because that's part of the experience, um, and to write out the active Im- imagination because it allows you to be a little bit busy, so you mm-hmm. can um, you don't uh, get your ego too involved. Um, and it's important to tell our dreams aloud with certain understanding with who's listening to us, and also to have some things that we don't say out loud. Maybe we do write them down for ourselves. Maybe not, but um, that there's some power in these choices about what we record or don't record and what we share or don't share. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other thing about, you know, recording your dreams, uh, let me use an example. So we all have uh, memories of our parents and those memories whether our parents are alive or dead, I'm talking about memories of who our parents were when we were kids. Those memories change over the course of our lives, right? As we get older, we begin to see our parents as people, not as power figures, which Mm -hmm. is maybe how we experienced them as kids. It's the same thing with your dreams. You have an experience in the moment and you try to work with that experience in terms of where you are in your life. And there's an exercise that I had a teacher who suggested to me. It's like, Every year I go back and read the dreams I had a year ago. So this February, I read last February's dreams. Uh Because you can look at them and experience them in a different way. And it also gives you just, it's, it's difficult to describe, but it gives you some dimension to your experience. You understand that it is, it's vibrant. It's not static. Um, And, you know, if I can digress into a a question you asked me in your email, you know, I had said that 
you know, fanatics are people who only dance with one archetype. Yeah, uh -huh. uh, I was very interested in that. Yeah, and, and so what is a fanatic? A fanatic is somebody who says, this is the way the world is, full stop. I'm right, you're wrong, I'm good, you're bad. Uh, these are the beliefs that matter, yours don't. Well, that's how evil starts, right? Because we insist that we're not connected. We insist that there is only one way in which the world can be perceived. Mm -hmm. As fully integrated human beings, what do we do? We dance with all kinds of archetypes, you know, and a lot of us would like to only dance with the ones that feel good. Uh -huh. you know? We don't want to dance with the ones that are envy or anger or hate or, but they're all in us, right? Yeah. And the more we dance with them, the more we get perspective on them. You know, I was raised in a family where I was beaten pretty much every day. Oh. So as I go into the world, my experience of human interaction is conflict, okay? And, you know, fortunately, I just, you know, I, I don't, whatever it was in me, I decided not to go inflict that on other people, but to work with people upon whom it had been inflicted, uh -huh. right? That's a choice sometimes we make. Nonetheless, it comes up in any kind of situation where there is a disagreement or a dispute. I know it, it lives in me, but it is in such perspective that it's kind of like, oh yeah, okay. I, I see it for like a split second and then I move on. Because uh -huh. it's kind of hardwired in there, but I'm dancing with so many other different experiences in myself that it doesn't predominate. What could have happened was I could have had the experience of that's the way humans relate to each other. It's a fight, right? It's yeah. might makes right. It's I'm right, you're wrong, all that stuff, right? So that's a narrowing of the experience down and a refusing to allow any other experience in. Uh-huh. And that's, you know, that is, uh, you know, St. Hildegard famously said, uh, evil comes from a refusal to ripen. Mm. A ripening is really an allowing of ourselves to experience life and ourselves and our interactions with other people and learn, you know, learn from those interactions, uh, just the way we learn from our own dream world. It's a constant, dynamic, always moving experience um, that is uncomfortable lots of times it's glorious at other times but sometimes not so much right right so uh <clears throat> and i i'll just add one other thing to that because this was amazing to me somehow i heard about a book called the enigma of reason and i'm not i'm not a big neuroscience person that's not my thing but there is something called confirmation bias okay and just simply put for folks who don't know what that means is that I hold a belief and you bring me 10 peer reviewed scientific studies that say my belief is completely wrong. I reject all of them. And then you come along to be a source that supports my belief and I accept it. Now that's, that's overly dramatic, but that's what confirmation bias is, right? Yes. I take yeah. And clearly so, a real thing <laughs> that we see yeah. all the time. Yeah. But you look around and it's like, Oh my God, there's confirmation bias all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. But it was oh in the literature it was always said to be a failure of reason, right? Uh -huh. Because we're reasonable, rational people, and look at that, that's a failure of reason. So these two guys came along, Mercy and Sperber, I think their names are. And they said, okay, well, let's look at that. Is it really a failure of reason? And they decided, actually, no, it isn't. It's the purpose of the rational mind. And the reason they came up with that is they said, look. When we were hunter-gatherers, we began to develop cooperative societies. So the rational mind was also developing at this point, and we put together arguments about why people had to cooperate. So if Frank wanted to sit in the cave and not go on the hunt, we could kill Frank, but he'd, we'd be a man down, so we don't want to do that. we got to convince Frank he has to come. And here are all the arguments, one of which is, if you don't come, you don't eat. So Frank goes on the hunt. And now in a more complex society, we have agreements. Everybody has to stop at the stop sign, okay? And we have 
a whole legal brief of all the reasons why you stop at the stop sign. So these guys basically said, you know, the rational mind is designed to come up with reasons why we're right. Now, we've worked around that, obviously. Uh -huh. you know, we do have the scientific method. We do have the empathic connection with other humans where that carries more weight in some situations than this argument we have in our head about why we're right and the other guy's wrong. But it's useful to see that the cognitive mind, the rational mind is designed this way, right? Because that takes us back to what I was talking about before, which is we need a container for reason. Mm -hmm. We need a container for cognition. Left on its own, it runs amok. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, it was such an eye opener for me. It's like, you know, and this always happens. I'm sure it happens to all of us. Like we read something, we go, oh my God. Of yeah. Course. Yep. That makes sense. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? Well, this is, it's so interesting thinking about this in the context of dreams and what you were saying a few minutes ago about, you know, being kind of rigid and black and white about, you know, one archetype or, or, you know, I'm right and you're wrong. Because oftentimes when someone hasn't worked with dreams much yet, or let's say even a kid and with a nightmare, the experience is I as the dreamer am under threat and the other figure in the dream is the bad guy. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, that can be the way the dream is carried uh, and the way it informs us forever. Or we can also, you know, go for a dance with the bad guy, um, you know, maybe do active imagination or imagine what it would be like to be dreaming the dream from the perspective of the bad guy, you know, and having this chance to dance with another archetype, as you put it, or uh, have some empathy, you know, check that, that confirmation bias that the rational ego dream character wakes us up with, you know, mm -hmm. but, but maybe in this way, I don't know, what do you think about this, that our dreams have the, the power to make us that much more flexible and um, ripe? Yeah, I, I, I think that's really true. And you know, we were talking about nightmares at the beginning. Um, you know, fear is really a transformative experience. I mean, in our culture, we have a lot of, you know, depression and anxiety, you know, regret about the past, regret about the future. And, and I'm not suggesting those are not real states, they are. Um, but they're not sharp enough many times for us to move. Fear is. Yeah. Fear grabs our attention. Yep. So when you say, you know, the bad guy, it's like we have decided that there is something in us that is too frightening to deal with. So it shows up as a bad guy. But if we go back to the dream, you know, the, of the woman in the van, it was absolutely terrifying and inconceivable to her that she could change her situation was, you know, if she did, there was such fear of what was going to happen, right? Well, that fear demanded that she examine that belief. Mm -hmm. And that I think is, is, is really what's going on. There's a, there's a, a an approach uh, called the internal family systems model put together by a guy named Schwartz. And basically the idea is, and it, it sort of lends itself to this idea of archetypes is that we have all these different parts in us. And so you take, let's take a part of a little girl who grows up in a household where her father is a total misogynist and basically tells her to sit down and shut up because she doesn't have anything to contribute. Mm -hmm. But this little girl does really well in school. And as she becomes a young woman, she gets a really good education and she gets a job and she's really thought well of and promoted up the ranks until she gets to the level where she is supposed to contribute to the strategy of the company. And all of a sudden, this part that saved her as a child that said, okay, I'm going to sit down and shut up. I'm going to go learn a lot, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut. That part of her <clears throat> is obviously standing now creating a problem for her because she's required to speak. Yeah. The idea there, a lot of people say, oh, that's your internal critic. That's your saboteur. No, it isn't. That's a part of you that saved your life. Mm -hmm. That's a part of you you need to honor. 
and have a conversation with just like an active imagination and say, you know what? Thank you. But I'm a grown woman now. I'm okay. And I need to help you find something else to do. Uh -huh. um, so all these things that we have in us that don't work anymore, uh, or we feel like are, you know, creating problems for us, they're there. They, they, we, we, we created them to protect us, you know, and that's why I get, I really get, you know, I, I have a real problem with this idea of a self-critic. It's like, I, it, no, that's not true. It's, there's a part of you that, that just has outlived its usefulness and needs to be honored and needs to understand that that's not where you are anymore. Uh -huh. uh, because the more you label it as bad, the more resistant it becomes. Yeah. It wasn't that bad. It tried to protect you. And now you're not paying attention to it. And oh my God, you know? Yeah. It's going to get louder and louder. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. I love that reimagining re, uh, re of the self-critic. You yeah. know, that, that it, it, uh, it reminds me actually of some conversations I've had recently around autoimmunity, which you know, this idea that your body attacks you, that some, that you get a the mistaken idea of what's you and what's not. And, and really questioning that, you know, does your body yeah. ever tr actually turn against you or is it trying to do something else, you know, or was there, was there some, um, some support it needs or something in the way, you know, but, but <sighs> we don't really actually ever turn against ourselves. We have such a powerful motive in us and capacity in us to be well and whole. You know? Yeah. And, Agree. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Will, I feel like we could talk for another hour, but we have to wrap this conversation up. Um, okay. be before we do, do you want to share a little bit with the listeners about how they can learn more about you, maybe your new book or how to keep in touch with you? Sure. On my website, willsharon.com. There's also my YouTube channel. There's about 30 videos up there on various aspects of dreaming. And you can find me on YouTube. Again, my name, uh, Will Sharon. Or you know, I have a I have a private practice, uh, and and I'm happy to. I don't charge for um, consultations. As always, I'm always happy to talk to somebody about the work I do. Okay, wonderful. I will link to your website and your YouTube channel in the show notes, so people can reach out to you and have that consultation, or just dig into some of your very interesting videos. And thank you again for talking with us today. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciated it. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Will Sharon. I'd love to hear what this episode sparked for you, any aha moments you might have had while Will and I were talking, any dreams of your own that came to mind, or really any questions or comments. Come visit my free group, The Dreamer's Den, on Facebook and post about this episode, or contact me through thedreamersden.org. My next episode is going to be an interview with Denise Connor. She has been a dream worker for many years, and she was a student and friend of Jeremy Taylor, the dream worker, author, teacher, and inspiring human being who is responsible for so much of the dream work going on in the world today. Denise and I talk a lot about her own story of health and medical decision-making informed by her dreams. It's a really fascinating story, and we have a great conversation about how to work with dreams, how to do that in groups, uh, very much inspired by Jeremy Taylor. So be sure to come back and listen to the next episode. Thanks again for listening today. If this kind of conversation feeds you too, I'd love to hang out with you online. Consider supporting this podcast, deepening your own dream work, and connecting with a dreaming community by becoming a member of the Dreamer's Den. You can choose your monthly contribution on a sliding scale between three and 24 US dollars per month, according to what works for you. This is a time of financial change and uncertainty for many of us, and I want to make it as easy as I can for us to come together in community over dreams. One aspect of our lives that can give us clarity, connection and a sense of guidance when you join the dreamers den you'll get four things 
One, a members-only forum that's open every day for sharing dreams and working them together in writing. I imagine not everybody in your life wants to hear your dreams, but everyone in this group does care about their dreams and they believe your dreams are interesting and important. Two, you'll get a prompt or invitation from me every month, a new way to engage with your dreams and with the group, which you can play with all month or at whatever moment it feels right to you. Three, you'll have a members-only price for one-on-one dream work with me. We can meet by phone or video call. And four, whenever I host a live online event, you will get 50% off the ticket price. In 2020, I'm planning some live dream group calls and live workshops on dreams and creativity, active imagination, and dreams and physical healing. Some of those I will lead and some will be led by guest teachers. I think you're going to love those. So again, the contribution that works for you between three and 24 US dollars per month. If you're loving what we talk about in this podcast, I'm sure you'd value membership in The Dreamer's Den. And I'd value you. Your perspective in your voice would add to the conversation in a way that only you can. Please visit thedreamersden.org and consider becoming a member. Until next time, wishing you deep dreams.